Today on the Science and Spirituality Podcast, we had the pleasure of interviewing Jeff Lieberman. So a quick bio on Jeff. Jeff received four degrees at MIT in physics, math, mechanical engineering, and robotics, which by the way, if you don't know MIT, it's Massachusetts Institute of Technology. It's quite world-renowned. He hosted Time Warp on the Discovery Channel about the wonders of science and made large-scale art for 15 years. By external measures, he was incredibly successful, but inside something was missing. This disconnect led him to a deep depression in high school and chronic pain for almost 20 years after that. Jeff learned quantum mechanics before learning about his emotions. He marvels the fact that we can measure the external universe to 10 decimal, 10 decimal place accuracy, but most of us don't learn about the, our insides, our emotions, what's leading, what leads to flourishing, how to take great care of ourselves. Years of personal exploration transformed him, leading to a determin determination to not have the road to joy be difficult for others to find. He has spent the last 11 years now focused on personal and group development, facilitating students and adults through intensives, and speaking around the world on topics of art, science, education, healing, and consciousness, which leads us into pretty much our entire conversation about his boot camp that he's has created and is running again this summer. Uh, it's called Sleep Awake. So you'll hear a lot more about that in this interview. But Chris, what was your take on? I don't know. This is my first time meeting Jeff. And I you know we talked at the end of the podcast about how we both watched his TED Talk a while back. Right. And so like our first introduction to him. And it's, it's, it's like really cool hearing that he has those four degrees from MIT. Because when you're, when you're talking to him, like you would never know that he has that deep, deep background in that. Cause like he talks a lot about consciousness and a lot about his like journey through all that, but it's like, it's, it's so hard to describe. So hard to describe him. Like he's just, he's such, he's such a cool dude and he's so down to earth, but you can tell that he has like this, like knowledge of learning all these different subjects and just being able to connect it through his experience. Mm -hmm. And that's like what makes him such a good, like host, uh, like a, like a guest for our podcast. Right. He has that, like all those backgrounds converging. And then like, you know, you were able to like ask some questions about like, like, the, the, the science of the body and like the science of the mind. And then he also knows how to answer questions about like the emotions and everything. And just the way he ties everything together was just like, it was really a pleasure to have him. Yeah. That's basically what I'm Brilliant. trying to say. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. And he definitely brings both like the depth of, again, his scientific knowledge and his inquiry. But then on top of that, the depth of healing he's done in his, his own life. And then of course, what he's now leading people in into. And, and also though the, his sleep awake camp is for people between the ages 18. And I think he extended to 30. So younger okay. generation, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I can make a change in his in their lives. Yeah, I was like when I, when I first because I was looking up the sleep wake camp before the podcast, and I was a little sad that it was like there was an age limit. I was like, damn, this because it sounded like something that I would totally go to. I know exactly. Yeah, yeah it's so good. But uh, and he had you know fourteen last year, so it was uh he said it was an incredible experience, really transformational. But anyway, you're gonna hear more about that. Hear more about his take on life in the world. It was a really incredible conversation, and I think you're going to get a lot out of even just this 50, 55-minute interview. So yeah, enjoy. Definitely. Enjoy. Welcome to the Science and Spirituality Podcast, where we dive deep into universal spiritual principles and ground them in modern science. My name is Chris Carton. And my name is Kevin Carton, and we are committed to simplifying the spiritual side of success for you with easy to understand scientific research so you can walk away with practical tools to create radical transformations in your life. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Science and Spirituality Podcast, and we are thrilled to be joined today with a return guest. His name is Jeff Lieberman. So Jeff, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me a second time, and it's awesome to meet you as well, Chris. Yes. Yeah, because last time, last year now, is about a year ago that we had that conversation. It's just you and I, Jeff, but it's going to be much more a dynamic conversation. I, I always miss it any time that Chris is not in the conversation as well, because you'll see his questions are really pointed and amazing. So. Mm let's dive into this topic because you have this amazing sleep awake camp that is coming up. And you mentioning before we hit record is the unknown about life. And so let's get into a topic of that or why you even brought that up as a topic. Yeah, there's, there's a metaphor I love thinking about. Um, and it's about different ways that we can move through life. And the metaphor that I use, this is an internal thing is, 
is that we can use a map and we can use a compass. And mm -hmm. the map is the mind to me. The map is all the known spots and where they are and how to interpolate between them and move a path that exists. And the compass is the heart. And it just says where you are, I want to go this way. This is just the feeling I have is to go this way. And when you think through what lives are different based on using those two things, and I'm not saying one's better than the other, um, but they lead to entirely different lives. And more and more, I've noticed that my habit patterns have been maps, you know, based on the known world. And we're, we grow up and we're inculcated in a society that teaches us very much maps of success and ideas and how to connect and what to do with your life. And so to break out of that and start having a balance where the compass is in equal conversation with the map and, and constantly informing new dynamic places on the map. Um, it changes everything, you know, instead of every, instead of me knowing where I want to get and everywhere I am pointing to that place, it's always where I am pointing out and, and, you know, firing into a complete unknown space. So that changes the whole life trajectory, but it also in the immediate moment, it really changes your attention. And, you know, when we were talking about it right before we started, just the very idea that right now, after I finished saying this, we have no idea where we're going it changes the intensity of this moment. It changes the level of presence. It's like, you know, you're catching a wave surfing. You, you don't have any alternative. You've got, you got to pay attention. So it's a big part of camp. It's a big part of my life these days. It's really seeing how much things change when you're only listening to what the moment is delivering without a preconceived theory about what it's like. Is there like a, a balance that you you find that it's important to strike between having the map and having some idea about where you want to end up, but then kind of coming back to the moment and just living in the moment? Is the, like what, what what kind of balance do you seem to strike with that? That seems to be best. Yeah, I, I think of a lot of uh, development and evolution in terms of polarities, and this is a classic like polarity, you know, mind heart polarity, map compass polarity, and so for me, the the real challenge is for someone to look internally and see how their biases exist and how are their biases potentially creating the life that's not in full coherence with what they want. And, you know, in our society, th there's exceptions to this, but our society is so mind dominated. You know, the, the very word education means to pull something out of someone, to induce something out of someone, but we tend to actually fill stuff. You know, we, we fill the vessels, as Sophocles said, instead of uh, lighting the flames for education. So we're so tilted on that side that for most people's work, it is to, to feel the intuitive sense and what's possible in the moment without having any idea. But yeah, for sure, like all those intuitions come from the entirety of your experience also which is all the mind information and the map. So they're inextricably linked. And I think the beauty is to actually like leverage them both and not, not be uh, secretly uh, ignoring one basically. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we've talked a lot on this podcast before about this like dominance that we have in our society with the mind and like trying to rationalize so many things. And, you know, maybe it's just the school system and the way that we're brought up, like we're always taught to be using the mind. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it really is interesting. The, a, lot, a lot of stuff we're learning about the heart lately too, that we've known for like over a hundred years about how it's like sending more information up to the brain than the brain's actually sending down to the heart. And like, I love the metaphor that you used about it being like the compass, because in my head, I'm like, all right, a compass, like, you know, it uses like the magnets of the earth to like figure out where you want to go. And the heart has this incredible electromagnetic field mm. that it generates out from you into the world. And so I, I just love that analogy that you made. And it just, it immediately struck a chord with me. Mm -hmm. There's even you to remind me, there's a book I read, I believe it was Rudolfo Yinas is a neuroscientist who wrote a book about uh, embryonic development and, and just the way the mind and brain works. And And he even said, this is super tangential, but it's like so amazing. I can't not say it with what you just yeah. said. Um, when the cluster of cells forms that will later become the heart, it's not yet connected to the brain. And there's an electrical potential that forms on the surface of it and starts beating rhythmically the cells. They start pumping and there's no connection to the brain yet. And then the neurons start to grow and make a connection. And then the heart rate itself gets taught to the brain. 
Hmm. And then what the brain is doing is it's regulating by feedback of that thing. But the whole signal came from the heart on its own. It wasn't a top-down process. And even in our, we're so mind-centric in our society that we just take for granted that the mind is controlling the heart, telling it when to be, but it's not. It's actually the heart is in control. Yeah. That's like, that's like another like beautiful just setup of like how it really works when you're living from the heart. It's like you, you, you listen to your heart and then the heart informs the brain what to do. Almost like that, that repeating system that you described. It's like the heart, what you want to do and who you want to be is always inside of you, no matter what. And it's about teaching the brain almost to like get in tune with the heart. Mm -hmm. And then when they're working together, it's like, it's, you're almost like an unstoppable force, but it really does start with the heart. And, and I feel like people, you know, who've listened to this podcast enough. And I mean, I can speak for myself. Like I know that there's a different type of energy that comes through my being when I'm following my heart versus just, you know, following something I rationally think I should be doing. It's very powerful. Yeah. And it's a, it's a skill because it's not yes. in our culture. So it's actually takes cultivation, just like going to the gym and developing your biceps. It takes cultivation to actually sensitize yourself again to the heart and the signals of the heart. And, you know, just to make it really concrete, like as far as I can tell, and this is from an integral perspective, I don't know if you, you guys talk about Ken Wilber at all um, on this podcast, but um, he talks about all the stages of development. And you can look at all these tools like tarot and astrology and pendulation as if you take the traditional view, we've tried to research like, you know, do, do all Pisces have these traits and do they get better along with Aries and stuff like that? And we have never been able to find statistical backing of that. However, when you read a tarot, the unconscious unseen signals in yourself get resonated by the different images and they actually get amplified into consciousness where the consciousness can actually start to sense what's been going on in an unsensed way. And so really incredibly like scientifically and functionally, those are amplifiers for the unconscious so that you're actually like sensitizing with an external tool, you're sensitizing your own self to what's going on inside. And so this image, you know, you might say, see some snake or whatever, but the three of us are gonna feel a totally different thing based on what's going on in our life. And it helps dredge that up out of unconsciousness. So to me, it's like incredibly fascinating all the ways that we can tune ourselves into our intuition. And it's still something that I'm working on all the time because of the biases that I've learned. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you know, you mentioned that it's something that you need to, practice like it's a skill to cultivate do you have like a top idea or a top couple ideas that you've been using over the past you know however many years to cultivate that within yourself that could be helpful for for listeners who are like mm, yeah totally. this makes sense and i want that totally um some of them are very like unique to my own flavoring and some of them are really universal so the universal things is you have to get back in touch with the sensations in the body um that is a thing I would say until I was 35, I didn't think any of those sensations were informative. They were stuff you had to deal with, you know, if I was heartburn or something, but actually the, you're getting signals every second that are the subtlest and most immediate response to the world around you. And so, especially as we tend to bring our energy all up all the time, there's a lot of really basic work, you know, uh, somatic meditations that you can do and just grounding practices where you can start to bring more of that attention back into the body. Um, I really love, you know, at camp, we do a lot of stuff around creativity. And when you put people in an improvisational context where they, you have to go faster than the mind, hmm. then you start to see incredible creativity, but it usually takes like five minutes of people really struggling because they, they don't know what they're going to say and they don't trust it because they have conditioning about looking stupid and having, you know, judgments. And so you put people in a safe enough container where all of us are making those mistakes and we're laughing about them. And then an hour later, people are in like altered states because they they are actually in a flow of trust of the, the intuitive signals that are coming through. And I'm, I'm a musician, so it's like, that's the bread and butter of improvisational music. You know, if you start thinking about what you're doing, it's over. You mm -hmm. can't do that, you're out. Um, so I think improvisation is amazing and embodiment is amazing. And the, the other thing I'd say that's more of an operating system level thing is we are ten, we tend to be out of the body because there are painful memories in the body and painful sensations about those memories. And so there's actually good reason we left the body because we weren't in a place where people around us were helping us feel through our emotions in a safe way. And so that's the other critical piece is actually doing the emotional work 
you know, for me, dissociation was like my my favorite uh, defense mechanism, right? The fight, flight, freeze, like freeze was a big one in my life. And I had to feel through a lot of that to be able to actually thaw some of the ice icebergs that were in here. Um, otherwise, you're never going to get the information because your your body's tuning it out. And 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 I just want to add one little note about that. Um, when you do that, since you know we might not go into this deeper, I want to say it for any audience member who's thinking about that. Like when you dissociate, which is the kind of the core connector of all trauma, is like something's too overwhelming, and I have to put it out of my consciousness so I can feel not overwhelmed. And when we do that, we're doing it for good reason. It's a really intelligent response. And to prematurely try to thaw those things when you're not in an environment that can actually support what's going to be felt through and come out feels dangerous. And I would never want someone to do that um, without feeling like they actually have a, a space in order to move through. Um, and so it's heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. I mean, but there are times where I'll meet someone and, you know, if they're still living with their family, for example, that is the source of some of their dissociation and trauma, I won't, I won't work with them because they'll open that and it'll, they actually have those things for good reason in that environment. And so mm -hmm. there's a lot of a, just slowness and care about like, when, when are you in the right place to actually feel through difficult stuff? But then, you know, when at camp, when you're 30 days straight of people just getting permission to go deeper and deeper into themselves, like people's whole facial structure changes, their posture changes. Um, but yeah, it's, it's incredible yeah. you know, when you're in that soup. Yeah. It's like interesting, like the, the, the nervous system relaxes and like, you know, the, the vagal responses like come back and you kind of can just see a person become totally different because it's who they really are. It's just their nervous system. is not in this protective mode anymore. It must be really cool to see that like in real time. Yeah. We, we actually take portraits of the cameras before and after to help see the changes. And sometimes it's a day, you know, sometimes you wow. do a specific thing that really hits a core thing for that person. And it's like, oh, Oh, I have muscles there. Those aren't bones, you know. So, um, and I, I, you might, you guys probably take it for granted, but just to to say it out loud for anyone that doesn't take it for granted, one of the main themes around somatic therapy is that in order to dissociate, in order to not feel overwhelmed, we have to tighten those areas of the body, and that's what creates chronic muscular tension, and that's what graduates later into illness and uh, chronic pain. Mm. So. We, we tighten everything. And so of course it has these physiological effects, but it came from a emotional trigger uh, that was overwhelming. Yeah, I think I would say more and more people are starting to realize that and how powerful the body actually is. I mean, just to highlight again, what we said before is like most of the information is being sent from the body up to the brain versus the other way around. And so the body's holding a lot of this stuff. And I think we're starting to see more and more people come around to that and like actually taking modalities such as like massage and acupuncture and and you know just taking care of the body as real medicine and that's mm -hmm. also really great to see mm -hmm. yeah it's, it's an amazing long-awaited uh turn you know this all this all started about 120 years ago when uh sigmund freud and wilhelm reich were uh you know co-workers you could say like both in the american psychological association and wilhelm reich was saying these things live in the body and Freud was like, this is all in your mind and you can just do stuff with your mind. And Wilhelm Reich, given our history, and I would say like, this itself is a trauma response is that culture didn't go with Reich. They went with Freud because we were all up here and we were actually in a defense mechanism culturally, but Reich ended up in jail and all his books were being burned and he was outcast. And if you look at the, if you look at the work now, it's the root of all the somatic therapy, somatic experiencing, bioenergetics, core energetics, Hakomi, it's all downstream from Wilhelm Reich's work 120 years ago. And no one knows this guy. Yeah. You know, I, I would argue that everybody yeah. knows Freud though. Everybody knows Freud. And, yeah. yeah. And, and so that to me, like a hundred years from now, we will, if we're around, we will laugh at the fact that we could be so ignorant of, of the wisdom that was there. Hmm. I think this is beautiful. You're bringing up the, the somatic experiencing or just obviously that's one tool or one way into this, but thrilled to hear you're doing that at the sleep awake camp, because I had a nine month experience with a spiritual teacher who helped me go through those kind of somatics. Mm. Even, even though it was virtual, it was a virtual meeting. I sometimes I would meet up with her once a month because she lives around here in Colorado. Um, but even online, although obviously it's that much more powerful in person. And when you have that kind of community and space where it's safe, 
but it was just a couple of people in this group, the kind of safety that I felt it was just in the body. And we started with focusing on the abdominal and just giving more attention to that space on top of also uncovering some things from our own past and dealing with it in an emotionally safe way. But it's incredible work. And I know I'm not the same person I was before even starting that journey. So it's amazing that you're doing that work. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. It's a, you know, I made this camp because I was super depressed when I was 18, 20 years old, and I was totally disembodied. And I thought everything was about the mind. And yet the mind was causing all my, all my problems, you know, I was insomniac and ruminating about everything. And yeah, so it's really, it's a cause dear to my own heart because I wanted this camp 20 years ago, you know, it would have really changed the trajectory. I was depressed for 10 or 15 years. And mm-hmm. literally we have people come to this camp after a month, have moderate or severe depression, just go away. Not everyone, you know, it's different systems. Um, but, and a lot of that is because you put them back in touch with the body. And as soon as you do, the body has a lot of stuff it wants to say, because it hasn't been listened to for a while. And so it's got a backlog and you just let it pour out, you know, it just pours itself out. And and that gut thing that you're pointing to is really core because um, it's a, it's a practice a lot of, across a lot of traditions. I don't know what they called it in that tradition, but the Hara in a lot of the kind of, uh, I think it's in Zen, the Hara and uh, some traditions call it the one point. It's like that point right under, right underneath, underneath the belly button. And if I can be talking to you and tracking that, I start to feel every little like response to everything mm-hmm. that you guys are saying. And it's like, oh yeah, the gut knows this first. The gut knows this first. And as you said, it, it gives the information to the brain. And um, yeah, so where do you learn that? I mean, you've got to go to a right. really special, unique yeah. place to learn it. And so we do like, instead of doing uh, push-ups every day for 20 minutes, we do like energetic sensation basics where you learn how to ground yourself and you learn what it means to feel an edge to yourself and what's mine and what's not mine. And these are somatic direct experiences they're not ideas about oh yeah i know that chris is over there and i'm over here you know so yeah that's the kind of thing that we have every day as well as yoga as well as meditation as well as emotional work like just it's a boot camp um so yeah but it's a critical component if you don't if you don't know how to feel yourself then there's no information flow yeah i think it also like it, it it just shows to how intelligent the body is I feel like, and I don't know, for, for a lot of people who may have never heard about this idea before, like, if, you know, if they're in pain or if they're like, they can't feel things, whatever, they might be thinking, oh, hey, like, there's something wrong with my body. But really, it's like your body's doing exactly what it needs to do in that moment to protect you. And so like getting in touch with the body and learning about all these processes that the body is doing and your nervous system is doing to actually help keep things under control for you so you can live your life. It really gives you this better appreciation of how intelligent it actually is. And then once you kind of get a taste of that, you can start working with it. And then again, like you, you can really become unstoppable after that. Cause you're like, everything is working for my good. Like this is, it's helping mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I geek out on that for a second? Please um, do. Please. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. It's like a two stage geek out. The first one is um, I was at a massage one time and I was asking like the guy, like, how does massage work? What's really like the mechanism here? And he was saying that uh, one of the core mechanisms in massage is that you're giving signals to the body that remind the cerebellum that it's okay to let go. Mm. We have a very mechanical, we look at what's happening and we think, oh, I'm pushing and I'm stretching. The body doesn't work that way. In fact, most people that have extreme tension, if you give them Novocaine in that part of their body, then they can touch their toes all of a sudden. There's not a mechanical problem. It's literally the fact that the brain feels it's not okay to let go. It's not safe to let go because at some point it wasn't okay to let go. And so because of this, there's even like debate uh, amongst different traditions around things like stretching because stretching is basically forcing your body to let go. Like I'm going to pull and pull and pull. And then hopefully I do it in a way that's not over stretching because then I tense even more. But if I tense the right way, I can start to let go into that. Um, so that, okay. So that, that was part one. I needed to kind of get across. It's like, it's really, it's not a mechanism, biomechanical mechanisms. It's a, it's a relaxation mechanism. And, and when we tense, as, as I said before, we do this for really good reason. Right. So I saw this, uh, there's an amazing spiritual teacher named Thomas Hubel. I don't know if you guys have been exposed to him. Incredible. He works with like war-torn countries on collective trauma that hasn't been processed Mm -hmm. like civil war and, 
incredible, but I, I got to do a session with him years ago. And a lot of the session was around specifically tension in the gut. And he had this lens that just like opened my eyes. This is seven years ago or something. It was like early in my healing journey. And he said, when you have tension in your gut, you're actually not perceiving what's going on. What's actually going on is that you are tensing the gut, but you've been tensing the gut for so persistently long that it's become an unconscious process. And so instead of me tensing, I see a thing called tension that's separate from me all of a sudden. I literally have frozen it into a mental structure and a physical structure. And what happens then when a lot of people have tension in the gut is they say, how do I get rid of the tension in my gut? That's not possible because it's not a thing. It's actually something you're actively doing right now. And the only way to do to move through it is to actually get on the side of the tension and actually realize that that tensing saved your life. It's not a problem. It's something that's maybe not skillful anymore, but actually at the moment, you hunkering down and numbing yourself was so critical for your survival that he calls those things your childhood heroes. Wow. And he says, you have to get in touch with this thing as a childhood hero. And you have to say, I'll tense as long as you need to tense until you feel safe. And when you feel safe, then we can let go together. And when you're on the side of it, then what happens is that the tension becomes tensing and you start to realize you're holding it and then it relaxes in a totally different way. And that is profound because if you don't know that you're going to be in a conflictual, violent relationship with yourself for your whole life. And that's culturally just not really understood right now. Yeah. I was going to say like when, you know, the way that you, you were describing that, it's like literally the exact opposite of like most Western medicine, which is like something you have a symptom in the body. Let's attack the symptom. Yeah. That's pretty much like our sphere of like reference right now in terms of medicine. And it's like what you're describing is the complete opposite. And it, again, it goes back to that discussion of like the body is intelligent. And when you get on the side of the body, you realize that a lot of these things that it's doing, it's helping you. I had like a similar, like an aha moment when I was uh, in acupuncture school and we were learning about back pain. And um, they were talking about how there's this one muscle that goes from like the lower back and crosses over the front and then into like the, the, uh, the, the, the top of your hip. Oh, and like, so as. Yeah, the iliopsoas. Okay. And like, that's the reason for most back pain because that that's the muscle that helps you like go into fetal position and like tense up. And so a lot of people, you'll be working on their back for tons of treatments and like, you'll feel the back get loosened up. And then you're like, why isn't this person's back pain getting better? You turn them over to the front and their iliopsoas is so tight because they're so used to like, their, their nervous system is so afraid going into that like shell position for some reason. And over time, again, it just, it just becomes so tight that they mm -hmm. can't release it. And so it's like working with that and like working with like, all right, like, why are you feeling this way in general and trying to get under the, the hood of, you know, what, what are you afraid of? And like, you know, what's, what's been your past traumas. And that, that really has gone like made the difference for some patients in terms of like their back pain. It's, it's, it's it was wild. Totally. Not to mention the innumerable stories of people that are in intense back pain in the middle of some session. And then immediately a memory flows in and they sob for five minutes and the back pain has gone. Yeah. I just know so many people, myself included, that I've had plenty of moments like that once you go down the somatic pathway and it's like, okay, there's a whole different story going on under the surface of what our culture is talking about. And, you know, I, I want to ground what you said, because I think what you said is so important that I want to ground it with another example, which is my mm -hmm. example of depression. Um, I, and we all know people who have depression, they go, they went into the doctor, the doctor talked to him for five minutes and said, you have a chemical imbalance and here's some other chemicals. I took Prozac for two years in, in high school and college. And, um, and man, I'm pissed because they, they, they made me believe that. I actually believed that for so long that I was in total distrust of my body. And so I was actually putting things that made me feel nauseous into my body, like against my body's will. And once again, this violent relationship, you know, mm -hmm. and, and depression is a, a really classic example of like, people don't understand depression. Depression means you're holding something down. The word itself means you're pressing something down and it's not a specific emotion. It, it could refer to a lot of different things. Once you understand that depression is that you don't feel safe to feel the depth of the emotion that's there and you feel the only alternative is to depress it that's 
fucking intelligent if you're in a place that it's actually not safe to do, right? Mm -hmm. And for many of us, we didn't have a family where it was really safe to feel the full range of emotions. Maybe they were okay with sadness, but not with your anger when you're two years old. Maybe they don't want your fear because they're too afraid. So you're picking up all these signals when you're a little baby and a little kid, and you're so intelligent that you know what you shouldn't show. And so you hold it in your psoas and in your back and in all these muscles in your gut. And, and I, I call all these things beautiful intelligence because it really like forces you to reckon with the fact that these things are really intelligent and like way more than our current like psychological understanding of the way the universe works. Like these things are so smart. And then the, the question is, is it still skillful for me to do that? Mm -hmm. This was really skillful when I was five years old. Now I'm 45 years old. Maybe it's a different world now. And a lot of the therapies that I've that I've seen and that we we run, it's like you you look for what they call disconfirming evidence. You actually act in ways to see for sure. Is this environment actually unsafe the way that it was unsafe before? And then you get disconfirming evidence and your nervous system relaxes. And yeah. So anyway, that 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 example to me is obviously dear to my heart, but but also millions of people that are walking around that are under the belief system that if they just look for a second, oh yeah, a really quick trick that I that I learned from uh, I'll try to remember his name to give proper credit. Um, he runs a uh, addiction recovery center, uh, Killaby Scott Killaby. Um, he does this great exercise where he says, okay, uh, close your eyes and imagine everyone in your family. And now go through the emotions and imagine yourself expressing fully that emotion, who in your family is okay with it and who isn't. Hmm. And there you go. You'll find out exactly why you're holding stuff in. Because if your family is like, bring it, I have all the space in the world for your anger as a two-year-old, you will not have any problems with your anger. You'll just, you'll just know how to use it as your clarity for what's not okay for you. Hmm. Um, I love that experiment. It's so It's so potent. It takes five seconds and people are like, this is why I have depression and my depression isn't sadness. My depression is this low grade grayness because I'm so afraid of the depth of the sadness that I don't let myself go there. Mm-hmm. And until I find the right place, that's actually an intelligent response. So yeah. all these complex dynamics, but we're in a culture that doesn't want to feel uncomfortable things. Like you, when you start looking around with the lens that we walk around with, um, 95% of culture is to help you distract yourself from uncomfortable feelings better. So yeah. We're, so we're it's like it's like that part yeah it's like that part of it too and then just thinking like the, the entire process that you explained about your depression and, and the entire process of going through and like feeling like which emotions are you depressing and and where do you feel safe to let those go or not it's like that process I feel like is not very easy to test in a lab environment with like a control group of people yeah. and just I mean I forgot where like our, our our science system maybe it was like with Descartes or something or a while back where he was like all right like we're going to separate like the mind from like the body mm-hmm. and so now it's like all of our science is like you need to have proof for it and it's those type of things that have been so hard to prove that we've kind of this reductionist way that we look at medicine is like just breaking things down to like all right like you have five of the nine symptoms you're you have depression you have four of the nine, four of the seven for anxiety, like you have anxiety. And that's the way that we look at people. And it's like something that has to change at some point. And I think it is because a lot of people are starting to be like, this isn't helping me. Like I need to start looking at it from a different view and different lens point. Totally. It's not even seen as a process. It's just seen as an object, seen as a thing. It's an ongoing process. I'm not having depressive experience right now in this very moment. Uh, It's a very different lens. That's also important too, is like not really trying not to attach yourself to a diagnosis as much as you can. Cause once you attach yourself to it, you feel like it's part of your identity and it's even harder to get rid of because yeah. you, you, you make it feel like it's part of who you are. And as a human, you're always going to feel threatened when your identity is threatened. Yeah. I, I talked and worked with someone who who's has a specialty in things like chronic pain work, uh, through emotional resolution technique, it's called MRES. And, uh, and he said the, that he can. The work he does helps about 75% of the people with chronic pain in like one to three sessions, like major shifts. And most of the other cases is because the person unconsciously wants that pain. They need it. They need it because it strengthens their identity. It gets them a certain type of care that they don't feel they'll get otherwise or attention. Or So it's a rat's nest in there. It's complex. But it all comes from intelligence, right? It all comes from these very basic things. Like I need to be safe and I need to be connected. And every emotion I've ever had 
is about that. Yeah. What are, what are some of the things you do, I guess, for people who come to the sleepaway camp? Like, I, I mean, I guess in the very beginning, it's important for people to feel that level of safety. Are there some key things that you do, some exercises that are like, all right, we're going to get, we're going to get everyone feeling safe, like right away. Yeah. I mean, I feel really excited about how we've put it together. We do like an onboarding. That's a couple of the days before we get into the regular schedule. There's a couple of days of like, okay, here we are. Like, what is this place? What's going on? And it's like a rite of passage right in the beginning. And safety is always the first thing because nothing can happen without it. At least, you know, you're not always going to feel like 100% at ease, but you're going to feel the resistance of moving into new material, but you're not going to feel unsafe. Um, and so we do a lot around that. And the first thing is just setting up really clear agreements about how the space works, about the fact that everyone is at choice at every point. They never have to do anything. It's opt-in, like it's confidential. All these, all these things that actually let you your mind get in line with what's going in, very structured. Uh, and then we go into... I'd say the big kind of arcs of that safety thing that you're asking about is, is um, shared experience, like seeing the shared nature of your experience. So we do some things, one, one example, I, I, I don't like to be too specific because these things are better as surprises, but one example that's really easy to talk about is a, is a circle where we name different things like, um, you know, someone in my family attempted suicide. And if that's true, you step into the center of the circle. And we do this with like 40 different things. It's like a very extensive list. And you start to see that like nothing you're going through is not gone through by like half the people in the room. And that creates such a sense of shared, like it makes me want to cry. because It's like the first time a lot of people in their whole life have felt, oh my God, there's actually like hope to address this and feel this. It's not just me alone in the world in this experience. Um, so getting that kind of sense of safety of shared experience, and then we go into the first stages of vulnerability where people are asked to share in, in active ways some of the details of their experience. And when you go into those places and then you find out that the people around you feel closer to you instead of further away by you going into those hard places, that starts what I call the permission spiral, where there's enough safety that people are like, this is my opportunity to let go of these things. And so those things just come calling. You know, it's literally like moths to a flame. It's like you put the, you take the brakes off and the backlog of pressure, it's like a balloon that wants to empty out. And it's like, here's the seven things that I've never been able to like share because of shame or whatever. It just all, it begins the whole spiral. Um, so that, and, and a bunch of variations on that really set up the safety and then swoop us right into the programming. It's amazing, Jeff. Yeah. Thanks. Especially that exercise I've seen in certain videos and just examples of that, but, and I, I've had my own experience of something like that. And it's just incredible to see. And I, I don't remember who's had this quote or this saying, but that there's more that connects us than that separates us or makes us different than each other. And that that's both psychological as physiological. I mean, uh, on a deep scientific level, but then also spiritually, mm -hmm. it's just these different aspects that we think that we're so different but it's just something that is in the mind that is a replaying loop that is disconnecting us because like you've shared, it's like maybe it's felt unsafe in the past to actually connect. Yeah, and I would say like that's a, you look at our culture now and then you look side by side with the hunter-gatherer cultures from 20,000 years ago and the incredibly interconnected sense of culture they had and like utter interdependence on each other. And, and now it's like, okay, get a wife and have your own kids in your own house. It's it's like, there's a measure of insanity there. And there's no wonder in my mind why people are so lonely and depressed right. because we're actually living out of coherence with those signals. The, the other thing that happens with that is we lose a sense of secure attachment. Like I think as far as I've seen over the last like 50, 100 years, there's a, if people don't know, this is kind of the, the way that people feel connected and really safe with their families. And once that leaves a family, it doesn't come back unless someone does personal work. And so I'm seeing that kind of like fading out in society and people are taking more and more for granted that you just do live by yourself and you do your own thing. Not remembering that privacy and introversion and isolation are like modern inventions that literally did not exist when you were hunter-gatherers. Like mm -hmm. when you had a problem, you went right to the to the tribe. You know, I don't need, I, no one said like, I need some alone time to work. No, <laughs> like it doesn't exist. It's a modern invention. Uh, and yet so many of us, myself included, are tend towards introversion, which I interpret as we don't remember that the group can help. 
Mm. So all we know is how to get a little self-soothing in our own space. And so one of the things about camp is like, no, you're going to feel this in the group. You're going to see what power that is to actually get uh, get held and kind of unlearn those tendencies. I think the vulnerability piece is also huge too. Like, cause I feel like for me with myself, when I, when I feel like I'm not reaching out to like family or friends for help, it's like, I, I intuitively know that they can help. It's just, there's like a part of me that sometimes doesn't want to bring something up because I'm afraid of like what they're going to think of me, or like, mm. I'm afraid to feel that vulnerability within myself. And so like, I really do feel like those vulnerability exercises are probably super important for not only just remembering that the group can help, but also feeling safe that you can come to the group for help. And Kev, we actually did an episode on um, vulnerability is the key to connection. You know, we talked about a lot of stuff on that, that episode where, you know, the most times that we felt connected with other humans and we made the closest friends was when we were really vulnerable about what we were going through. And it gave that avenue to connect. Yeah, this is, this is the disconfirming evidence I was talking about. We think I share and people get scared of me or desert us because this is our patterning from history and culture. And then we don't ever find out unless we try. And then we give, a, you know, you have go to a camp or you go to, you know, a podcast and you do this and you try and, um, and it opens up things that, that you would never feel. Um, and you're pointing also implicitly to a thing that they call negativity bias, where the brain has uh, much more reason to look for potential problems than potential good things, because we lived in scarcity for 99% of our history. So and, and I think this is like one of the most important things that someone could ever remember is that the fear of rejection comes from being a social mammal that was in tribes where rejection literally equals death. And that's why it feels like death. That's why when you are about to say something or take a risk in a relationship, it feels like dying for people. It really feels like some of the hardest challenges, like you're at a brick wall. and I really, I want to say that to really honor the fact that like, this comes from a straight up survival mechanism and, and it was a life or death situation. Yeah. Another, uh, body intelligence there. Yeah. That's again, yeah. tempted to keep you safe. Like it's, it's really, I'm telling you, like, I think that's, that's one of my favorite ideas about, you know, especially going through school and like learning about like this alternative complementary side of medicine is like that your body really is doing its best to help you like under the circumstances. And I think really realizing that it's like you stop being at war with your body and you start asking like, all right, like, thank you. Now, how can we move forward like yeah. a better way? Yeah. I think that the flip that I would recommend for people is to try on the idea that the body is infinitely intelligent and we are at a random point in history where we have not found alignment between the body and our culture. And we're we're doing things in culture that are so out of alignment with our actual needs that we're utterly confused and that clears a lot up when you start looking at it honestly it's pretty yeah. <laughs> like it's 2023 this is not what humans are like this is like the weirdest slice we've ever seen of humanity 99.99 percent of us is hunter-gatherer society um so yeah, take like a grain of salt with the what what AI is doing right now and like what's happened is like that's not yeah, I heard this heartbreaking thing. There's a woman, Ellen Desanayake, who's a, a historian on the evolution of art. Like, why did humans evolve art? Um, and and to her, she believes that it's a, an utter survival need. It was really a necessary part of our history. And she has this line in her book. Um where she says, uh, humans have shown time and time again that in conditions of scarcity, we will band together and we will overcome any challenge and become stronger by it. Uh, we have yet to show if we can do it when we're flourishing, mm -hmm. when we're not in scarcity. And that that hit me like a ton of bricks. You know, we we were we started this talking about mind versus heart, and it's like. The mind when you're in scarcity is such an incredible tool to help you figure out what to do, to create tools, to, physical tools, to get things that you need to band together in more complex social hierarchies. Amazing. It's so powerful that it didn't need an off button. It, it needed to be running all the time. So now you're in a place where you have Ben and Jerry's ice cream, an infinite amount of social media to take your attention that all feels like little sugar pills and a mind that is utterly unsettled because it's always trying to grasp for more. And so that's why we have all these new evolution of 
healing and meditation. It's like a continuing evolution of the human species. It's very natural to me, uh, almost so that if you didn't see meditation existing yet, you could scientifically predict like this is what would be needed next in evolution. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the kind of lens I take on all, all of culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like all that all that connectiveness too is like there's the the people who are in charge of a lot of like capturing our attention are also starting to and they have been for a while to start to pull at our emotional strings too to start pulling us into certain directions so it's like they they i'm just using that term yeah, 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 they, they understand like the power of those emotions and the empower and the power of humans attentions and if they can direct our attentions and emotions towards an outcome that they want like they're sure going to get it because we're that powerful as humans and you can see that happening like people trying to like flip reality and trying to like make you think a certain way so we yeah. did an episode on that too, like a while ago, Kevin, about taking back your power and realizing that like you have this ability to direct your attention and direct your your energy towards something that you actually want to create. Yeah, you're reminding me of, uh, I would say one of the most important hours someone could spend watching something is a documentary. The first episode of the documentary called Century of the Self. Have you guys seen that? No, no never even heard awesome. of it. Watch it. And then let's have another podcast about it. Century <laughs> um, of the Self is literally about how advertising used to look like, hey, if you buy this toothpaste, it will clean your teeth. Two, if you buy this outfit, you'll feel more full as a human and more fulfilled and people will like you more. And that's exactly the hooks you're talking about. It goes from functional uh, consumerism to identity consumerism. Mm. and you would never freaking guess, but the guy that did that was Freud's nephew. Huh. So of course. he had learned all the things about the hidden unconscious motives and desires in humans. And he was like, if we can do this in propaganda in wartime, we can do this in peacetime. And he was the guy that changed all the marketing that you see, all the social media that you see. It was this guy, Edward Bernays, um, Freud's nephew. And if you see it, you will never look at the world the same way because everything just like you said it's constructed based on knowledge of how to hook into your unconscious desires and motives yeah i think that guy edward bernays too i think he's i think he has a connection with netflix too i want to say yeah yeah i don't know about it yeah but no that that's funny because i know i I know that name and i that's yeah it's it's funny that you mentioned that but that's that is and then again you have people you start people start attaching their identities to stuff and then it becomes very hard to this like unattach them from that because once it becomes a part of your identity then anything that comes against the identity feels like an attack mm-hmm. and so you become very grounded versus like having an open mind about like hey maybe i could be wrong about this because once you have these this certain level of, of this is who i am everything feels like an attack yeah you're reminding me like one of the one of the gifts of having deep depression is that you see through the promise of things and you actually have a, sometimes, you know, I'm not universalizing this, but uh, sometimes you have an easier time letting go of false promises than other people because they're getting like enough of a sugar pill from it. But if you're in depression, you're kind of like, no, nah, this isn't doing it. This isn't the thing that's ever going to actually fill the hole. And that's like deepens the depression, but it, it like lets go of, all, I feel like I went through a 10 year period of letting go of like all the Maslow hierarchy stuff of like social esteem. I was hosting a TV show. People were recognizing me on the street. And I was like, this is hollow. And so many people spend their whole life trying to have this moment and it means nothing. And I felt so lucky because I could have spent my whole rest of my life. Oh, I just need a bigger TV show or something. And um, yeah, the depression was like, no, this will never fill the hole. Look somewhere else. And I'm so glad that it led me down actually, you know, doing healing work and spirituality. Mm -hmm. I was going to say before, I think this is a perfect time to say it as well, that um, I appreciate your perception on you, you've said it at least like five or six times, the intelligence, and it comes right circle mm-hmm. back to this is like the intelligence of that depressive period you went through and the gifts that came from that, that it's not, I don't believe that, it, that there's dire, I mean, there is dire situations for sure, but that it's impossible for our whole species to change because of the things you've been saying of like the intelligence, that the, these things are coming up for a reason that it's good, like certain you know, processes in the body and bringing it up so that we can deal with it and work yeah. through it. And I, I think that we we are on that precipice, which maybe not even on the precipice, maybe we've already crossed this threshold, but we're moving in a very different way. And um, an example of that, which as you, I think I shared with you last time when we talked, Jeff, but 
our podcast has grown continuously, but still our major listeners are in between ages 18 and 35. So younger generations are more interested in this kind of information and are willing to do something about it. So that personally for me gives me so much hope. And again, for what you're sharing is like the perspective is like, yes, like this is good. Or you didn't say those words, but that's my words for it. Like yeah, it may yeah. not feel good, but it is good so that we can transform and heal and become a different version of ourselves so we can live in different ways. Yeah. In, in evolutionary theory, there's a thing called punctuated equilibrium theory where, you know, people get the idea that evolution looks like this, but it actually looks like this, where there's all these like Steps. really intense stresses in the environment that that shift stuff and still over like a million years at a time but um not anymore culturally we move really fast and there's like let me feel how to say this that the key insight there is that every critical movement in our evolutionary history was preceded by intense stress and incoherence and that's where we're at right now what we're feeling is things that didn't work and the breakdown of that. And I have it now I have a several billion year lens on these things and we're just in 2023, you know, but it's been a lot of billions of years and that's where we're at. And so it actually gives me a really different non-pessimistic view on all the conflicts that are happening. It's like, I know those are a necessary condition for us to move to the next place. Like if we're all living in enough of things that are eh, like this, nothing's going to change. We exactly. have to be in a breakdown uh, to create the next next breakthrough. That reminds me of a purely scientific example of that. Me and my wife, we went to see a 30-minute presentation at a planetarium, and they were talking about like the, the beginning of the universe and how we are we've been created as humans. But the first transition that happened to create elements like um, I forget the the higher elements in the periodic table, but the first uh, star that was created were only like elements from one to maybe 17 or 20, forget the exact number, but it created a core that could not evolve past that. So mm -hmm. it had to actually go through nu nuclear fusion. I mean, that was the per first part of it. And then the, the star had to explode in order for more elements to be created and then so on and so forth to have our own existence today. And so that just like blew my mind thinking about that. It's like, gosh, like, that's probably the worst thing for that star, but yeah. <laughs> we couldn't have been living if it wasn't for that happening. So yeah. it, thinking about pressure, right? Totally. I mean, the caterpillar dissolves entirely before it becomes the butterfly. It dissolves entirely. And it's like, we're still trying to figure out how that works. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or like what it's like thinking, like it's crazy. It yeah, doesn't it, think. It's, yeah. it's amazing, right? It's like literally the the patterning, and I think they even said like the experiences of the caterpillar are like known to the butterfly. So it's like in that soup, like all this stuff is known. You know, there's all this like amazing stuff at the Levin Lab at Tufts where they study embodied uh, cognition, and they can cut like a flatworm, a traumatized flatworm, into 200 parts that all regenerate a full flatworm, and they all have the original trauma, like even the parts that didn't have a brain in them that cognition gets carried through we have no idea what's going on like yeah. no idea we're just like we're living on the surface of this incredible thing that that the mind is trying to like hammer down into something that makes sense and mm. uh, yeah i have more and more of a sense of sacredness to the level to which we have no idea how this is happening and right. the, the, learning the laws of physics doesn't change that not at all. In fact, I feel like any science, scientific study I've done into just life or human potential, it's like, it makes me not more confused, but more in awe of mm. the mystery of life that, like you said, we have no idea really what's going on. Totally. totally. Which is beauty in that. And then the letting go into the unknown so that we can become who we're meant to become, I believe. Yeah. And, and we talked, I think this was right before we started recording, but we, you know, we talked about like the, the fear excitement, the differences between fear and excitement. And it's like, when you're in a totally unknown space, you have two choices. You can be in total uh, contraction and fear, or you are in wonder. That's it. And it just depends on, am I resisting this or not? And when you're in an actual unknown situation, it's like when you, when you meet someone new and there's like a really cool charge that's moving around and you have no idea what's about to happen, which started this conversation, like there's such aliveness and wonder there that so much so that you don't even have the time to notice that there's wonder because you're just wondering. That's all that's happening is wondering. Um, and yeah, and you have the choice to basically wonder or to be in resistance to life. Mm-hmm.
there was someone who said that fear is basically excitement without the breath. So, uh, it, so just taking death, deep breaths. And that's exactly what it's like you saying, being present that moves into the excitement or the wonder. It's actually being present with what is new or the unknown. Yeah. In Tibetan Buddhism, they talk about the Buddha nature inside all the emotions. And it's like, mm. if you don't allow fear to move through you, it stays as anxiety and fear. And if you do, it's excitement. And it, but it feels the same before you actually analyze it with the mind that that thing is just intensity. There's just alertness and wakeness. Uh, and then what the mind interprets, oh, this is a problem or this is the best thing ever. That's up, that's up to you. Yeah. It's really right. up to you in the moment is based on your conditioning, but it's a, that's a mental decision. Yes. Hmm. So Jeff, as we're coming to the end of this conversation, which feels like it just went by like that, um, obviously we've been mentioning and you've been sharing about the sleep awake camp. So anything you want to share as we're transitioning to this endpoint of uh, what it's about more specifically, although you have done a great job already of sharing what does happen there, but anything you want to share on the event, like the, the, this whole camp, this 30 day camp, and uh, then where people can find information about it. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Um, camp is called Sleep Awake. It's a it's a pun off Sleep Away Camp that people go to. So it's sleepawake.camp. And it's going to be this year in Colorado in the Rocky Mountains from mid-June to mid-July. And so, you know, visit the website to find out all the detailed information. But I would say, uh, you know, on a generalized way, it's a month-long boot camp for your heart and your body and your mind. And it's really for most of the people that go, it's the first real chance to address emotional well-being full on and, and see all the dimensions necessary for that. Everything from learning how to meditate and see the nature of your thoughts, to working on your core, to emotional and relational intelligence, to working on your conditioning patterns, limiting belief patterns, to learning how to cook for yourself, which I found a really critical part of my own well-being, um, to opening up your creative voice. And it's a boot camp, so you're doing all this stuff every day, so that it actually is sustainable. Because you can't do like ten hours of emotional work a day. So you do some of that, and then you do creativity, and then you run around. And um, so it's really hitting all these things that, for me, would have most been most critical toward my own well-being when I was 20 years old, when I was depressed. And it's not by any means just for depressed people, but that a person in that state will have a lot of motivation to come to a program like this. So that we we get a whole range, but that's definitely one of the big components of it. Um, so anyone that's interested, I would say you can get a free info call with us uh, at the bottom of the webpage and you can fill out the application. And, and, you know, basically all we're looking for on the application is, is this going to serve you? Is this actually going to be serving you in a place in your life where the changes that will happen there can integrate into your life? Because some otherwise people go there and have these incredible wide experiences, but they don't have the environment at home to support that. So that's the kind of thing we look for. Um, it's life-changing for everyone on campus, including me and all the staff. Um, we have probably as much evolution as the, the campers do. It's incredibly beautiful. Um, I am a scientifically minded guy. So we did a data study on the campers. And in the first year, over 70 of the people, over 70% of the people that came in with uh, anxiety or depression had a, a really statistically significant reduction in both. Um, amongst a ton of other measures that are all listed on the site. So it's incredibly beautiful. And someone will just know there'll be the tug in their gut and in their heart that says like, this is what I've actually been waiting for, but I didn't know what it was called. Yeah. So trust that gut and give us a ring and we'll, we'll see if it's a fit. Excellent. Thank you for sharing Jeff. And uh, like we always do, if you're interested in anything that Jeff just shared, the link will be in the description of this episode. And uh, yeah, you can check out his information, see if you're a fit or feel that for yourself. And another uh, quick side note, because Jeff, we talked about this, it's happening in Colorado. I live in Colorado. I would love to visit if you're, if you're going to attend this camp, uh, me, Kevin, will be visiting some point, at least a day. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. But uh, Jeff and I are going to talk about that. So, and Chris, I don't know, they'll be awesome if you could visit too. Yeah. I know it's a bit further for you across the country, but that'd be awesome. Oh, Denver. And I can yeah. see you, so. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe we could make a like, yeah, a combination trip out of that. But anyway, like I said, uh, check out the information that Jeff just shared on his website. Link is in the in the description of the episode. So, Jeff, this has been incredible. Thank you for being here in this conversation. It was enlightening.
it's, it's always really stimulating to talk to you and now to meet your brother as well and get the same kind of, uh, you know, that heart compass guiding yeah. the way the whole time. Yes. So thank you both for having me. You're welcome. that's it for today. So thanks for tuning in. We really hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. So any questions, any comments, connect with us on Instagram personally at Kevin F. Carton or at Chris J. Carton or our podcast Instagram page at Science and Spirituality Podcast. And if you feel guided to, the one thing that we do ask is for you to please rate the podcast and also leave a review. This way we can reach more people and in that way impact more lives. So with that, we'll see you on the next episode.